This presentation is from Managing Design 2016, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Join me in welcoming Harriet to the stage. Hello. Oh, this loud. Sounds really loud to me. Um, so I'm going to, I know it's the middle of the afternoon, so I'm going to try and tell you some stories. I'm going to try and take you through a little bit of, a, of, of the adventure. The reason I chose to talk about misalignments was because some years ago, I found myself consistently being drawn back to working in big corporates. And I really wanted to be the kind of person who worked in a funky agency. And I'd go and work there and I'd come back and I'd think, oh, what is it about these, this corporate that's fascinating me? Because it's a really annoying place. And a mentor I had once said to me, <laughs> said to me, you know, the reason you like it is because it's full of misalignments and, and you love unpicking all of those misalignments. And she was absolutely right. And I think it was a really important point in, in my design learning where I realized that misalignments are always there. Things are always misaligned, consistently misaligned. And design is perhaps the practice of consistently unpicking, ordering, and straightening those misalignments. And I think those are some of the things I want to, to take you through. It's really, really easy. And I feel like the design journey we've been on in Australia and internationally for the last well, years that I've been working in design, have been very much a, a sort of arguing about what is the best design practice, what is the best way to set up a design area, what is the best way to do design. And I often find myself thinking, well, if we are designers and if we work in this space and our space is to evolve continually the meaning of things, why are we so frightened of evolving our own practice? And what does that mean inside the organizations that we work in? And, and I love this quote because it reminds me of the idea of incremental innovation versus radical. And I think we've been tinkering around that incremental space for a long time in design. And we've been making some progress. And I think the very fact that there are so many large design areas in, in corporates now and so many new agencies and it's so hard to find designers is a, a, to some degree a success of that. But I feel that we need to make a braver step now. And it feels a little like perhaps we need to have the courage to bash and shape our own practice in the same way we bash and shape services for our organizations. So what I'm going to describe to you is, is an experiment. And it's sort of my career experiment more than anything. Um, I don't know how many of you, you know Eero, but an amazing, amazing industrial designer architect. And this quote reminds me always of the fact that something is only ever as good as the context within which it sits. And design is only ever as good as the context within which it sits. And no matter, and, and I think Rob touched on this a little bit before, that no matter how beautiful the sprint, no matter how beautiful the playbook, no matter how beautiful the artifact, it doesn't actually mean anything if it doesn't fit the context. There's no point having a massive, massive couch that fits eight people if you've only got a living room big enough for two. One of my designers came in last week and um, he said he'd had a great weekend and he'd bought a new TV, and then he'd spent the rest of his weekend moving everything out of his flat because there was no longer any room for any furniture because the TV was so big. <laughs> and, and this is very much how I feel like sometimes we, we need to, to be considering things. So I'm lucky enough to be working at the moment in Medibank, and I started there 18 months ago, and at that point we had no design capability. There was just me. And we were asked to set up a customer program, a design-based customer program. And it's a real lucky moment in your life when you get to sort of design something from scratch and also absolutely terrifying. And the basis of what we were doing was really to say, in the past I'd worked in other big organizations and we'd been accused of being a little bit fluffy. 
you know, we were the, the kind of nice guys who had sort of funky furniture and nice stuff. And we always aspired a little bit to be meaty and sensible and be taken seriously and be at CEO level and be taken to board. But we were also a little bit intimidated by this idea. And I thought, what would it take for a design program or a customer program that was able to be both fluffy and meaty? And what if it could be, so it's not a very good metaphor, is it really fluffy meat? But you know, <laughs> I'll stick with it for a while. So, so we said, well, in order to have that kind of background, what we really need is some data. Because everyone meaty has data. And we went, what is the data that we get to work with? And we entered that minefield of, is it NPS? Is it customer SAT? Is it customer effort score? And after a bit, we went, does it really matter? You know, is it a Sharpie? Is it a pencil? Really, does it matter? What have we got to work with? And in Medibank at the time, we had NPS. And we said, OK, we've got NPS. How would we use NPS as a design measure? How would we change the way we use it? Because like any measure, it's only as true as the way it's interpreted. So what we decided to do is we decided to build a customer program that had a voice of the customer that was deeply built in NPS that was driven from customer journeys. And we said, what if we could actually define an NPS measure from a journey? And what if we could actually use a story to define a measure and then a measure to define a pain point? And we could actually put some numbers around that. Didn't actually know how we were going to do it yet, but it sounded good at the time. And, and then we said, well, if we're going to be able to do numbers, then we're also going to be able to set KPIs. So we're going to have to work across capability and people and culture. And we didn't want to be another one of those design programs that worked very much in isolation, because I've known the frustration of that, where you actually go, we've invented this amazing thing, and everyone goes, yeah, fine, moving on. So to do that, we had to look at things like maturity models, a customer obsession program. And these are not new things, but what we did was we smashed them together in a way that started to make sense. And the journey has been somewhat chaotic. We've got it wrong a few times, and we've definitely been inventing it as we go along. But where we are right now is we're in a position where we have four components of our experienced design team. We have voice of the customer, and we're quite lucky to own voice of the customer, because our voice of the customer often sits in either a data area or a marketing area. For us, it sits in experienced design. So we get to decide both the insights and the way that the treatments are designed. We have customer experience, and we have user experience. And that's a little awkward sometimes, because user experience kind of belongs to digital and it kind of belongs to customer experience. And, and the establishment of that team has created some interesting adventures for us. And then we actually have a change component as well, because we understood that if we were going to transform the program, we needed change within the very bones of the system that we built. And we also needed our designers to understand change and our designers to understand numbers. So this is where we are. And we're now 18. And what we found is we feel like this a lot of the time. We feel absolutely exhausted. And sometimes it's really hard to get main, get maintain momentum. Sometimes it's really hard when we're asked to justify why we're doing something. We found that no other area of the business has to provide quite as much data to justify the work that we do. If I'm in finance, I get told to produce a spreadsheet and a budget, and people say, great, you've justified your existence. And everyone says, yep, 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 moving on. When you say that we've prioritized these five pain points, people go, oh, how did you do that? And you go, well, we measured this, and we did this, and we prioritized that. They went, yeah, but how do you know that's true? Because you just spoke to customers. And so we found ourselves having to become new speakers and new language users. We found that we've had to define and change the way we speak. And for me, I was given some really interesting feedback. There's a, there's a really inspiring guy I work with who is an amazing product manager. And he is a phenomenal business manager as well. 
And we went on one of those team offsite things, you know, where they sit you around in a circle and everyone has to say like one nice thing and one terrible thing. And it's horrible. And so he said to me, the nice thing is you've taken my mind to places I never, ever thought it would go. He said, the difficult thing is I really cannot fit it in a spreadsheet no matter how hard I try. <laughs> and, and so this was a journey. And we then drove home from lawn together from this thing. And he, I said, look, if you teach me how to draw pictures in spreadsheets, I'll teach you how to draw pictures, picture pictures. And he said, OK, deal. So a year later, he's been teaching me. And what I've found is that numbers are actually no different from pictures. It's just that they're another way of telling a story. And that all those numbers that I used to think were really, really um, safe and sound and right are just as dodgy as a dodgy sketch. And that when you see something that doesn't make sense in a number, you have to sort of call it out in the same way that it doesn't make sense in a picture. And learning that as a design team has really changed the way that we're taken and the way that we're able to work. So the journey I've been on has really been to move across a, a, a sort of pathway from my early days in NAB. When I first went to NAB, we had just opened um, an innovation lab. Um, I, I, Ash had been there for about six months. I sort of picked up after he did. And we were very much in that wonderful creative age where you build an innovation lab and you make stuff and you have cool furniture and you have cool laptops and you're the cool kids in the building. And we went through that period of, of inventing stuff and the stuff was great and people came and looked at it, but it didn't actually make a huge amount of change in the business because ultimately the speed at which we moved in from the speed the business was moving and the language we were using was too different from the language the business was moving. So after that, I went into post and, and, and I began to try and learn from strategy and think, well, what I want to be able to do is describe the work that we're doing in the same way as the strategists describe their work. And I got really kind of caught up in trying to be a consultant. And I got to make great PowerPoint packs. <laughs> Spent a lot of time making PowerPoint packs, which bored me to death, but I was like, no, I have to do this. And in that period, I got really taken by methodologies. I wanted to build methodologies and frameworks and steps for people. So I had the creative bit, and then I tried to put all the creative bit in steps so it would make sense. And that kind of worked in the same way that the lab kind of worked. And now I think we're at a point where we're moving into a hybrid of those, that we're in this sort of transformation journey where methodology isn't really enough because nobody ever really changed the world with a methodology, to be honest. It's a great guiding principle. They're great things to use. But they're not the things that are going to take you to innovation. And they're not the things that take you beyond innovation into invention. And so what we then started to do was to mash these together and go, what components of strategy, what components of methodology, what components of invention and innovation, and what components of business improvement and continuous improvement are we going to play with next? And this was quite challenging because what we found was that it's like when you have a you know, design idea that you love and, and you put it out there and people start to critique it and you feel really protective of it. We started to wonder if maybe we were actually unpicking our entire craft and whether this was an okay thing to do. And then I, I came across this quote only a couple of days ago from Don Norman where he talked around the skills of craft. And my dad's an industrial designer and he's retired now. And he is one of the last sort of remaining industrial designers that can do sort of foam core modeling and can build 3D models by hand. And my sister is a ceramic designer and has a, a very successful ceramics company in the UK. And she started to employ my dad 
because they wanted the skills of foam core modeling that they couldn't get anymore in the market. And they're working with um, ceramic spirers and people in different parts of the UK that are, that are working in that craft space. And last year at, a, at the design fair in Milan, they built a maker fair and a maker workshop. And what they did was they asked a whole bunch of different people who were designers, craftspeople to come along and you had to turn up with your stuff that was broken or needed a bit of adjustment or just you wanted to donate. And these people would kind of reinvent it on the spot. It was the most popular part of the entire show. So, and Steve and I were talking about this earlier and he said, yeah, I, I accept the craft that may not be enough. But there is an element of craft which is really, really important. But it's not going to be enough to change the way that design is managed in organizations. So we thought, right, if we're part of this methodology to transformation, if we're trying to change the way that organizations are transformed, if we're trying to invent this as we go along, what are the things that we actually need? And how might we make sense of it all? Because the space that we were working in was highly regulated, like banking. In fact, probably worse than banking. Um, health insurance is sort of one of those really, really strange categories. It's, um, we're the only country in the world that has what they call non-risk-rated health insurance. So basically, um, whether you're 65 or whether you're 18, you pay the same for your health. And health companies are awarded cash based on how many older people they have versus how many younger. So if I'm a fund like Frank, when I have lots and lots of young people, then I get, have to fund and support the, the funds that have lots of older members. And this is both a, an asset and a drawback. It's a drawback because we have immense competition rules and we're not allowed to discriminate against any group of people, which means that we might want to test and learn something with a group of people who have a particular disease. We can't. We can't do anything that will give them anything that people who don't have that disease have. So it's a really challenging design environment. And like any great constraint environment, it, it's, a, it's a, a fun place to be. So then we started to think, well, if we can't play with the rules of the category, then we started to look around us and go, what are we seeing in the, in the world and what are we seeing in ecosystems? And what if design wasn't just a set of tools and methodologies, but what if it was about the way people worked? And so we looked at things like um, Apple ecosystems. We looked at Cisco. We looked at some of the stuff that's happening in fintech. And we looked at these economic communities of partners and we said, what would it look like if a design community was part of an ecosystem and what would that ecosystem have to be? How big would it have to be? What sort of things would it be able to do? Could we help other people become designers? Could we teach three skills and get everyone to work in a different way? Would that change the ecosystem? How would we work if we can't share? How, so many of you will have had this experience where you've all signed NDAs, no one's allowed to share anything, you are not talking to the competition. We definitely don't talk to the blue health insurer. But you're at an event, and everyone has a bit of a chat, 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 chat. You share a bit of stuff. You have a little bit of a look. And then off you go and pretend you haven't seen it. And it's the way we work. We're, we're effectively, we've got an ecosystem, and we're doing it anyway. So how might we do that in a way that extended products and services in different ways? And then we looked at Medibank itself, and we said, we have this sort of really interesting, I didn't know this until I went to work there. But we have health services that we provide to what they call populations. So there's um, garrisons. So all of the health that go out to sort of all of the army and navy personnel. We provide health services um, to um, people with depression. We have care services that we provide. So if you leave hospital in a taxi, if you're a, someone who gets ill quite regularly and you're regularly hospitalized and you leave hospital in a taxi, then you are 10 times more likely to end up back in hospital three weeks later. And that's really, really, really expensive for us. 
And it's really, really bad for you because people who spend more time in hospital stay sicker. And people who, and health in funds spend, um, I think it's 98% uh, of the outlay goes on about 15% of the people. So dealing with chronic illness and dealing with consistent illness is a real problem. So we went, okay, what would this look like? In the past, we've worked as a health insurance company, and we have this defined list of people we work with, people who get involved in that, and people who are members of that. What would an ecosystem look like if we started to work differently, and what would it look like if we started to operate differently? And it's been, I think, probably one of the most challenging things to start to do in my life, but also one of the most interesting. Because if you start to look at the way that you work with an ecosystem, then you can scale projects faster in the same way that you can't get something done. So we're all complaining about the fact that we can't get, to those of us who are in corporates, we can't get enough designers, there's not enough designers. Where do you get senior designers from? How do you build teams? But what happens if you start to be porous in the way those work? What happens if you start to be able to scale up and down across ecosystems instead of scaling up and down inside teams? What does that mean? It means you have to kind of invent new ways of paying people, new ways of sharing IP. But that challenge, I think, is a worthy one for us. What if we stopped complaining about the shortage of designers and we actually looked at how we might build a design ecosystem that was more flexible? What could we do? So then we went back to our own problem and we went, okay, so we've done this, we're trying to build an ecosystem, we're trying to change the way we do design, we're trying to not do methodology just, and we're trying to do innovation at the same time. How would we go back and talk to the business? Let's go back to that number thing again. And we said, what if MPS wasn't a measure of satisfaction at all? What if MPS was a measure of risk? Because everyone takes risk seriously. And <laughs> the moment you say, have you looked at this? And what we said was, if you actually look at a breakdown of NPS and you look at detractors and passives, and I don't know how many of you know how NPS works, but effectively, it's that question you get at the end of a survey where they say, how likely are you to recommend X? And we said, if you add together detractors and passives, then they're a body of customers at risk in your business. So if you have an NPS of 35 or so, where you've got, and, and you're sitting back going, yeah, it's great. We're all good. We're in positive NPS. Actually, what that means is that 65% of your customer body is at risk. And if that were a financial metric, everyone would be screaming around in horror. And so we tried this out, and we said, right, let's, let's try to describe this. And it's become incredibly powerful for us. So we redesigned the way we talked about journeys. And we said, if NPS is a measure of risk, then our challenge as innovators and designers is to design things that move journeys from a current state insurance journey to a future state insurance journey. Because all we're going to do is we're going to fix the problems in the current state. But then people get saying, yeah, but what about the story of the future? What about the future experience? What about the vision for the future? And we were like, why are we so obsessed about this vision of the future? Because we all know that five years ago, the vision of the future was totally different from this vision now. So what if the power of design was about incrementally building the future? And what if the power of touch points and what if the power of journeys was to be able to say, first of all, let's fix the current touch points. Secondly, let's build some new ones. And we're experimenters. We're all about incremental innovation. We're all about radical innovation. But these incremental small things, if they fit into a journey, suddenly become things at scale. So you know how many customers are at risk. You know the worst performing parts. And you also know where in a journey a new invention is going to hit. So for the first time, you've got this kind of global picture of how the world is changing. And it's always going to be faster to fix what's broken than it is to invent what's new. 
So you have this dual system. So suddenly, that conversation about you guys don't move fast enough, it's going to take too long to speak to customers, doesn't work anymore because you've built a machine. Because you can just get on and fix stuff. That's continuous improvement. And you can be inventing stuff. As you invent stuff, you start to create new touch points. That gets rid of some of the old touch points, but it also allows you to sort of experiment. And you go, so we put a new touch point in, and we put some content in it. And it was crap. Old world would have been, let's not do that again. New world is, was it the touch point that was wrong, the content that was wrong, or the picture that was wrong? So we've just started to do this. We've said next year we're going to be able to put dollar values on all of these different things because we really wanted to be able to do that. On my learning journey of, of um, spreadsheets, I've actually learned to write budgets quite, quite in quite detail. I'm very proud of that. I told my dad the other day, I was like, Dad, you have no idea. I know how to do this now. And we said, this isn't just a journey mapping framework or a design framework. This is a customer measurement framework. Again, we thought customer measurement framework sounded good. You know, we've got risk. We've got measurement frameworks. We're all about being meaty here. And we said, this works bottom up and top down. So we have our MPS, but we also have our service MPS. Because one of the things that we learned when we started to use our journey mapping was that members who were inactive with us were twice as likely to leave us as members that weren't. So we said MPS is driven by journeys, and journeys are driven by touch points, and touch points have drivers. So when we did our journey mapping, we went out and we, we did qual to make, make our journey maps, and then we went out and we did quant, loads of quant, so we could be taken seriously. And out of the quant, we found the 100 worst performing drivers in importance and satisfaction. And that allowed us to say, when someone said, ha ha, what is that pain point? We said, it's made up of these things. So now, whether you're at this level of the organization working on a pain point, or whether you're at board level working on an NPS, you know where you fit in the framework, and you know what you're doing relates to customers. Now, this sounds great. Like, we are 18 months into this journey. But we now have these measures in at board level. And we now have, for the first time, a set of corporate planning that's happening around embedding these in. And we've modeled, actually, what will happen in terms of laps if we move a detractor to a passive and a passive to an advocate. So we went, right, that's great, we're done. We have a 50-page PowerPoint deck. We have risks. We have frameworks. We're all about being meaty. And then everyone kept saying, uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. OK, what's going on here? And somebody said to me, you know, we have this brand new brand campaign. I don't know if you've, you've, you've probably all seen the brand campaign. Maybe you haven't. But they, they did this incredibly brave brand campaign, which went out with documentaries. And we got all sorts of abuse and praise for it. And we were sitting back one day, and someone said, ah, oh, you know what it is? We've stopped telling stories. We're so busy trying to be meaty that we've forgotten to be designers. And we've forgotten that what we do is tell stories and create visual inspiration, and that we create these things in ways that create power. I have to go back to the beginning, start again. Well, not exactly start again. But that took us back into that journey. We went, what if we didn't have a 50-page PowerPoint deck? What if we remembered that pain points are actually stories? And what if we remembered that the reason we were having trouble telling those stories was we forgot our language? In the whole movement to try and become business-centric and try and be taken seriously, we actually forgot our own craft. And I think this happens a lot. And I think it's that looking for meaning and looking for where you fit. And it definitely, definitely happened to us. So we started to look at places that we could create convergence then. We said, right, it's not enough to be either meaty or fluffy. We have to find these places in the organization where things converge. And when I first came to Medibank, and, and even now, it was very difficult to work. We have, being a health insurance area, we have 
medical and clinical areas, and they are very scientific. And their data is, is obviously about life and death. They have metrics on, they, I, since I've been there, I'm terrified of going to hospital, because I now know that actually it really matters what hospital you go to. And um, some hospitals are phenomenally better than others. And some hospitals, you have a phenomenally high rate of infection, and some you don't. And I've learned that some hospitals, you'll get readmitted quite often, and others you won't. And some like to get paid based on the number of times you get admitted. So you might end up coming in twice to have the operation that could have been done once. I understand this tell you a bit now. And we also had a lot of tension between the area of the business that was in health insurance that wanted to experiment and innovate, and the area of risk and clinical risk in the business that was saying, you know, if you're really careful, if you're going to talk to someone about their hips, then you have to know these 15 things. So we started to look for places, and what we found, we found this area of the business that was working on these programs called Care First. So they're the ones that have found out, for example, where you spend $500 um, to fit out somebody's shower, and it saves you 25000 in hospital readmissions. It looks at meals and providing meal replacements. And we've now got this big program that's been run across a number of different hospitals. And they came to us and they said, oh, we want to build a, uh, a pop-up space, a design. Like, you want to build, a, we, it's become known as Big, big Betty's House. Because um, it was, the, 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 the design brief was for somebody who's quite big and old. And we said, oh, Big Betty. So they came to us and said, you're a design team. Tell us how to build this pop-up. And we stopped being precious about doing it right, and we said, you know what, we can do that. It's not going to be perfect, but we can do it. And we had to fit it out, and we had so little budget that we actually had to drive a rental truck to the Sammies to go and get stuff for Big Betty's house. But in that space, we also found then interesting partnerships who wanted to work with us. We said, we're going to build this immersive space around old people and health. And people said, oh, you know, we'd love to try this out. We got our different parts of the business in, and this is not an unknown story yet. You've all been through various parts of it. But what it did was create that bridge back into um, health. We were seen as being people who were a bit slow to work. You know, you always want to do things right. So we built a test and learn program. And we said, we can do this. We can do process improvement. Design process improvement, pfft, meh, not that different. And so what we did was, for the first time, we brought together across the business a group of people. And we said, all we need is some money to run what we call waves. We said, we're going to do eight-week sprints, basically. And we brought together all the channels. And it was the first time all the channels had been in the room together. And it was the first time we'd actually had our frontline staff in the room at the same time. And we brought in the process people and the product people and the tech people. And you know this story. And we've now run three waves of them. And they've been phenomenal. We've done simple, simple things, like give people boarding passes when they sign up for health insurance, like just making a simple welcome call because it's really hard to deal with um, health insurance. Like sending people a text message when they claim. Nothing that's going to rock anyone's world. But it rocks the ecosystem's world, because they now see design as a powerful tool for making change. And we now have to move on. We were saying this year, you know, now that you've done that test and learn, all that is is design. So we'd like to do it on a bigger scale. We'll have some pizza. So you can't do a presentation without a Steve Jobs quote, but I did choose it very carefully. And the thing I think that we're finding is that by being a little bit less precious, we're working with parts of the business and we're learning their disciplines. So this year we've run a program which tried to encourage our designers to become less designy. So we said design is a service discipline and design is a dis discipline that is in service of its outcome. And so how do we help our designers learn to be better at delivering service? 
at the same time as we work with our product managers and our process engineers about becoming better at design. So we now run a five-day program where it's over a live project, and the purpose of the designers in that project is to be the experts and the guides in design, and the purpose of the product managers and the process engineers are to be their experts in their field. And there's massive transformation happening, massive amounts of conversation happening. And I think for me, I always knew about those soft things, and I always knew about the power of conversation, and I always knew and understood the power of cross-disciplinary work. But I kind of forgot how long it takes to build, and I forgot how long and how powerful it would be if I gave it patience and time. And I think it's really easy sometimes to be so busy rushing to do the really highly visible stuff that you forget to do the stuff that's in the background. And because we have numbers, we've got less pressure to do the, the, the more exciting stuff. Although we still suffer from um, people coming back from conferences and saying things like, oh, we saw this amazing innovation. So-and-so and so-and-so consultancy is going to build us a thing. And we'll go, great, that's going to be awesome, that thing. Where are we going to put it? What's it going to do? And they'll say, oh. So we can do it. Bring the people in. We can do it. But let's work out where it fits into here first. And so it's changing the way we work with our consultancies and our agencies. It's changing the way we work with our finance partners. And it's changing the way that we can unpick some of the stories. And I think what it's really done is it said, if we're going to transform design in organizations, then we have to not just pay lip service to the people power of it, but actually do it. And I, I heard a beautiful story. Um, I was at a conference, and some of you may have heard this. Um, there was Slack were talking. And they were talking about how when they first launched Slack, before it became Slack, it had a game. And it was um, in, inside this game, they had two things that they'd sort of invented. There was this waiting thing. And it was like, yeah, this is, is going to sound great. So basically, you entered this space, and you could nominate to wait in this space. It was like timeout. And you could nominate to wait five minutes. And people kept waiting longer and longer. And they'd nominate to wait for a day or two, or three days sometimes. And the guys were looking at this, they're going, what is going on in this waiting space? And as people were waiting, they were kind of doing stuff. And just sort of, you know, moving things around. And things would happen, and like Minecraft stuff would get invented inside the waiting space. And they were like, people are kind of tidying stuff as well. And what if we make this space that's about tidying? So they went, who'd have thought that you'd have this game? And these were the two most successful parts of the game. It went nuts. People loved. So they had this part of the game where they would empty a big pile of stuff on the floor. And they would let people tidy it up. And after watching what people did, <laughs> I don't know. But <laughs> apparently it was really, really, really good. Um, and people would tidy it up. And they, they looked at it and they went, you know, it's funny. People are doing this every, you know, they're doing this in their homes. The way I tidy my desk is probably not the way you tidy your desk. You know, you might put things in piles or you might color coordinate them. I stayed in an Airbnb once which had this bookshelf that was kind of rainbow color coordinated. It was so amazing. But there's no way I could do that. And in this tidying space, they learned that people did things in different ways, not hardly a, a new revelation. But by watching and seeing it, they suddenly went, you know, it's really weird because email makes you tidy things up in one particular way. Like when you use email, everyone has to think of folders and put stuff in tags. And I know you, it's very successful for you. It's kind of Gmail was good for me because it was a, I could just use search. My, my inbox at work is a fairly disastrous occasion. But they said, right, this took them to this thing that said, so people have ad hoc pathways through tidying up and waiting. So why wouldn't they have ad hoc pathways through work? And so they started to mash together all of these different things in it to, to help people create their own pathways with the motto of the, of the famous Slack, be less busy. So we started thinking about this, and we were thinking, well, I wonder if that's the same with health. Because, you know, 
health is kind of ad hoc too. And so we started looking at all of the data, and we've got so much data, all of these stories. And what people were telling us was that when you go in any kind of medical experience, you rarely know what's going to happen or what happens next. So you go to a GP. The GP says, oh, you need a scan. So you go, okay. You don't go, why do I need that scan? I had a scan last week. I had four scans. You just go, yep, okay. And then that scan might take you to a specialist, and you say, oh, who should I go to? And so the GP looks up in the big book of things, and they're either going to choose a specialist based on who they went to college with, on the fact that they're nearby, or they just happen to know them, or it was the first page in the book. There is absolutely, or very little, science behind the choosing of a specialist. And then you go to that specialist, and that specialist tells you to go and do something, and they say, right, you're going to go and have this procedure, and you go, okay. And then you go back to the um, specialist, and you go, well, I wonder where, that, where that's going to happen. Like, am I going to go to a hospital, or am I going to go to a clinic? So when it's just the same, it's like we've got an email approach to health. So what if we were to create a Slack approach to health, and what if you could actually create ad hoc, less ad hoc pathways for people? What would you have to marry together? So we went, okay, the first thing we've got to do is connect all these things and the health system, as anyone who's worked in health will know, is, is really, really complicated in, in the worst. Definitely not complex. It's definitely complicated. And in the health space itself, with the providers and the specialists and all of the different components, there's an ecosystem. There's an ecosystem in your customers. There's sick customers and well customers. There's customers who know how to use the system and customers that don't. There are people who've been through it a number of times. There's people who are chronically ill and there's people who are sick for the first time. People are a bit frightened sometimes, and sometimes they're just part of it. Then we have partnerships, and there's all of this amazing stuff happening in the health space with Fitbits and data, only we can't kind of use them here because you can't incentivize someone. It'd be great if we could say to someone, if you go and do exercise each day, you'll get cheaper health insurance. We can't do that. The way that Qantas and Nib have worked around it is quite clever because they've been able to work um, through the Qantas Frequent Flyer program. It's pretty, we, we were pretty jealous of that. We thought that was pretty good. Um, <laughs> the employees themselves, who bring their own ad hoc pathways into work and into sickness, and their idea of what makes you well and what makes you sick, and they blend those together. So what we started to do is go, right, if you can create ecosystems of connections, and if you can create ways of people talking to each other in new ways, then you've sort of got a tidying up game happening. And so it's not just continuous improvement, it's waiting and tidying. And if you can sort of fall in love with waiting and tidying, then there's all of these amazing design opportunities. And it doesn't have to be something funky and earth-shattering. But that process of waiting and tidying itself is just transforming the journeys that people have. It's not all we're going to do. We want to do the cool stuff, too. And that got us thinking about tests. And so we, um, you remember me saying we went from current journeys to future journeys, and we said we're creating new touch points in these journeys. And we started to think about our own careers and the way designers work. And we started to think about options and um, Hayden Shaughnessy calls it optionality. I don't even know if that's a real word. I think it might be. I'm not sure. But all design and prototyping are. It's a way of creating options. And I read this great case study um, from Google, and they said that they were, when they first launched Gmail, they knew they had a data storage issue. And there were two distinct approaches that were taken to, to building this new data storage. One was to sort of build it brand new, and the other was to sort of incrementally improve on the existing system. There was a lot of tension about it. And in the end, the director said, look, you know, what we're going to do is we'll try both. And they went, oh, it's never going to work. You know, it's going to take ages. We haven't got time for this. The engineers had a bit of a mini riot. And they said, off they go. And in the process of building those two 
areas, what happened was both schools actually listened to each other. They weren't in competition with each other. They were actually talking to each other. And they had to justify why their system was actually, and they had to go and sell that system to the, the, the techs that were going to have to get out of bed every time the system broke. And they had to go out and justify that system. And as they were justifying it and selling it and building it, they all came to the conclusion that the incremental one was the best solution for now. But because they created options, a small group of the team that worked on the Build It From Scratch team were able to go off and just start on the future. So instead of saying, we're not going to do the future state experience, they created two options. And then we started thinking about careers, and we were like, so if you're a contractor, you go into a business, and you work for a short period of time, and then you move to another business, and then another business, and then another business. And sometimes you have to make decisions about whether that contracting um, is an investment in your time. And sometimes you make a bargain and an investment in a company, and you're there for a year, and it perhaps doesn't work out, and you've banked your options, and then you've got to kind of go back into the marketplace and redo it. So if everything, including products and services and careers, are being built on options, then it changes the way that we look at prototyping completely. And we start to apply that design skills to our ecosystem, to ourselves, to our products, and to our services. And then we thought, well, that means that we're kind of reinventing a system, and that's what design should be. So although it looks like it's the meaty side, and although it looks like the fluffy side, all of these different skills and tools that are emerging out of this design space are actually helping us reinvent a system. And though each one itself is not revolutionary right now, the accumulative power of that reinvention will be. And it will be revolutionary for the way designers work, hopefully. My, uh, <laughs> my son, is, um, he came home from school the other day, and he said to me, he's, trying to, he's, he's taking it very seriously, he's 17. And he, um, he's having a bit of a career crisis, which I was trying to explain to him he doesn't need to have yet. But he is having it anyway. And he's, because he doesn't know what he wants to be when he grows up, he's only got till next year to, to, to decide. So it's a little stressful in our house at the moment. So I, I keep trying to say to him, you know, it's, it's OK, don't stress. And he said, oh, I, I said, what do you want to be? And he goes, oh, an astronaut. And I said, well, then be an astronaut. And he goes, oh, yes, how many career opportunities are there in astronauts? And I said, well, I don't know. Like, he said, well, maybe four in the whole world. He said, it's not a very good career choice, is it? And I said, well, you know, what if on the way to being an astronaut, you, you find something else? And he went, oh, that's a good idea. So he came back from school, and he said, I told my teacher. And she said, that's design. And I said, ha! <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I was really proud. He said, so maybe I thought maybe I'm a designer. And he's like, so I thought maybe I could be a designer. And I said, oh, OK, well, maybe you could be a design astronaut. And he went, yeah, yeah, good. And off he went sort of quite a bit happier for now. OK. <laughs> so this idea of optionality is, is not about uncertainty. It's actually about certainty. And it's actually quite a nice, safe place to be. Because nothing is unbankable. And nothing is ever lost. My mum told me when I was at school, she told me um, that no job was ever wasted. And this is when I was working in the dog kennels, cleaning out dog poo. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure this is really not the case. But the whole pet thing was quite useful, and the whole like, patience and endurance was, was quite useful. But this idea of optionality is a far easier way for me of looking at the change of a system, because sometimes I get overwhelmed, and I look at the health system, and I go, how can we possibly ever change that? And I look at design in organizations, and I think, how can we possibly ever, with these 18 people, design a new organization? And then I think of options, and I think, yeah, we could probably do that. So I had a, a, a book that I encountered about three years ago um, by a guy called Harold Nelson. And I, I've read it. It took me about three and a half years to read, because it's the most amazingly dense book. And I've read some chapters several times. Some chapters have 15 different colors in them. And it's, it's, I, I can highly recommend it, but don't expect to read it quickly. Well, I don't know. I didn't read it quickly. Um, 
but it is a little Bible now for me. And one of the things I love about the way that he talks is that a design system is adequate. And when I first read it, I thought, adequate sounds really bad, doesn't it? You know, when I grow up, I want to be adequate. And then I thought, and the way he explains it is really powerful because he says, a system is only as complete and comprehensive as it needs to be in order to fulfill its intended purpose. And what he means is, the world has to be amazingly complex and complete and comprehensive. But a system doesn't. A system just has to do what it needs to do at the time it needs to do it. So when we look at design and when we look at the way that we design, I think it's really important to think about those options and for me to think about that adequacy and to think about what actually has to be done right now because that does allow you to look at a massive scale of change and it allows you to scale in new ways. It allows you to have courage to keep moving on. It allows you not to get demoralized on those days when you just want to go, we have this like, ooh, gif in our, in our, in our, I don't know you all have, you have a moment. Those days when you come back and you just want to go, ooh. You can have courage if you can think it's an option. If it doesn't go right, I'm going to walk away from it. Convergence. Where are the unlikely combinations and where can I put them together? And sometimes they're totally in front of your face and you just miss them, trying to be too clever. They're about authenticity. And I have no idea whether this practice that I'm talking about up here will actually work. I feel kind of excited about it in that sort of tingly way that suggests it might. And then I thought more, if all of those things come to being, then you really do have invention. And in invention to me is far more powerful than innovation. And it's far more deep-seated than innovation. So for me, those misalignments and that first conversation about misalignments was just about understanding and starting to unpick. And it's sort of unfolded for me this massive sea of things that actually make the power to change the world. And so for me, managing design now is about helping to bring those things to life. So thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Managing Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.